What's up, guys? Welcome back to the MMA meeting. Let's talk with Louisa podcast where we talk all things MMA. And there's a lot of things going on now. So it's fight week. Actually, the end of fight week, weigh-in day, the day before the actual fights. And it seems like the war between people thinking that it wasn't going to happen and then the more optimistic people who thought that it was going to happen, it seems like the optimistic side is finally winning. And we're probably going to get fights. Most likely, we still have a day. We don't know what's going to happen. We forget Tony Ferguson's on the card. And the whole situation, the whole environment is very uncertain. But I'm just glad, man. I'm just glad I get to see fights at the end of the day. I'm kind of sitting back, waiting for everything to unfold. I know Luke Thomas is seething that this fight card's actually happening. No, I'm just kidding, man. I like Luke Thomas. I like some of his views. He was just a little bit pessimistic about this whole situation. And at least what I'm hearing of, I'm not an expert or anything, but it seems to be, like I said in the beginning... Not as bad as people made it out to be. I understand why everybody was coming forth and saying that the whole virus is going to be so bad. I understand people had the best interests for the world, pretty much. But I don't know, man. I'm just hearing people talk, people smarter than me, and I'm just going with what they're saying. But weigh-ins just happened. Let me check to see what the actual weights are here, but I think only one person missed. Yes, Jeremy Stevens is the only fighter on the entire card who missed weight, and he made it up for the team, man. Not only is he the first one, but he, he missed by four and a half pounds, five and a half from the actual 145 pound weight class, right? Four and a half pounds missed. And that's huge. That's big. Because a guy like him, he never really misses weight. He's a veteran of the sport. He's been fighting for a very long time. He has like the most fights out of any other featherweight. And 150 and a half pounds. He's almost fighting as a lightweight against Kelvin Cater. I don't know what happened. He did look a little bit drawn in, but... It's hard to know if he's going to have an advantage. It's hard to know how this is going to affect him because it comes down to two things. When a fighter misses weight, advantages and disadvantages come down to two simple factors. Number one, did they push themselves to the limit to the point where they couldn't cut any more weight and their body failed them? At that point, it's a disadvantage. But then there's number two. If they knowingly beforehand thought ahead of the time that they were going to stop the weight cut because they want to rejuvenate and get to the fight because the fight is more important than the weight cut. So they ultimately stopped the cut early and tried to just recover before it got too bad. Then it probably is an advantage because they're not destroyed before the fight. You know, they didn't completely wreck themselves getting into the fight. And at the end of the day, the fight is more important than making the weight. I understand making weight is the way to get the full purse at least. I don't know how much he's actually giving up to uh, Kelvin Cater, but it's a probably good chunk of change. Jeremy Stevens gets paid pretty good. It's also kind of funny that he kept saying that he doesn't want anybody else to take money away from him or food off his kid's table, but at the end of the day, he's kind of the one that did that with this Phil Wake Up. I don't know what happened. I don't know what caused him to miss weight here because it could be the virus. It can be the change of locations. It can be the change of gyms. It can be a lack of training partners. I don't know what it is, but someone as experienced as Jeremy Stevens... He has to be able to do it by himself at least. A fighter at his caliber, fighting as long as he has, making a weight as long as he has, he should be at a level where he can make weight by himself. right? Tony Ferguson did pretty much the same thing. Tony made weight twice within three weeks. And he's bigger than Jeremy Stevens. He probably cuts more than Jeremy Stevens. And he did it pretty much by himself for the first one. I don't know. It can be a disciplinary factor. It can be... Just a change in environment, change of times that threw him off. We don't know what it is, and we don't know if he's going to have an advantage or disadvantage. So it's hard to say how the fight's going to play out, but ultimately, no matter what, advantage, disadvantage, I think Kelvin Cater has an advantage when it comes to skills. I still pick him to win no matter what. Jeremy Stevens, if he has a number two factor where he kind of strategically stopped cutting weight just to get a little bit ahead in the fight, he will probably have more power in his hands. And a 150 and a half pound Jeremy Stevens is going to be a very powerful Jeremy Stevens, right? He's already like the hardest puncher in the weight class. This is just going to add on to that. It can hurt his chances when it goes to the third round, gassing out and stuff, because he's probably going to need that third round. It's going to be a dangerous fight. The fact that it's so much weight that he missed, it tells me that he strategically stopped it beforehand. Because very rare will a fighter stop a weight cut this far from the actual targeted weight while also destroying their body and taking their body to the absolute limit. If 150 and a half pounds is the limit for his body, he should not be a 145er. Simply put, I just don't think that's what's happening. I think he saw that the weight cut wasn't coming down that great, ran out of time, ran out of training partners to help him out. And he's like, you know what? I have like a couple hours before I can make weight. 
I'm just going to stop it here, man. I don't know if I can make four and a half pounds within a couple hours or whatever it was. Because those last few pounds are the ones that hurt you the most. Those are the ones that test you mentally. And I just don't know if he wanted to get to that point because it is uncertain times. We don't know when Stevens is going to fight again. So possibly he didn't want to ruin his chances. Getting the win bonus is more than losing 30% of the show, right? Win and show money together with that 30% or 20% cut from his show money is more money at the end of the day if he wins. You know, if he wins, he's going to get more money than hurting himself and risking losing. So it can be a smart decision. I just don't like when a fighter misses weight because it shows unprofessionalism. I know Kelvin Cater might be a little bit irked at that, but he's probably happy with the money he's getting. Other than that, everybody else made weight. Everybody made the championship weight. Henry Cejudo, Dominic Cruz. Look at them two stare off. Henry Cejudo looks like Dominic Cruz's son. I mean, the size disparity between them two is so large. A lot of people off of that, when they see the image of them looking at each other, just that image alone because of the size, people are picking Dominic Cruz to win. I see it all over the comments, but man, you can't just be that naive about it. Yes, Cruz can win, but the size is just not the biggest thing here. Henry Sudo fought Mala Marais, who's bigger than Cruz, right? Maybe an inch shorter, two inches shorter, but massively looking at it, he's way bigger than Cruz, man. He's stronger, and he dealt with him pretty well after that first round. So he was a very, very smart fighter. He was super cringe. I'm not going to lie, man. Taking out those pillows and kicking it, that was that's pushing the cringe level, man. That's pushing at the brink. With all that involved, I can see how people underestimate him. They think, how can this guy so cringe be so good? He has to lose. Cruz is a mastermind fighter. He can't lose to this cringe king here. Yet, Henry Cejudo is just that good. You cannot let the cringe deter you from how good he is. He's so good, man. He's good at everything he does. His striking's amazing. His punches are amazing. His timing's amazing. His movement's great. And his wrestling is the absolute elite of the elite, like top five class. You can just not undermine that. And when Dominic Cruz fights smaller guys, he usually has a better time actually taking them to the ground. He is a strong guy. Physically, when he grabs onto you, he's pretty strong. Punches, not so much. There's a difference between punching power and grappling strength. If he out-wrestles Cejudo, Cruz is just legendary, dude. He's just an iconic figure of combat sports. If he out-wrestles Cejudo, nobody's able to do that. Not even Demetrius Johnson was able to wrestle. So, it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough. Is Cruz going to have to rely on his striking? But when he relies on his striking against a guy who has power in his hands and also is faster than him... It's going to prove a lot of problems, right? Demetrius Johnson. People forgot about that Demetrius Johnson and Dominic Cruz fight. How it actually played out. A lot of people think Cruz picked apart Demetrius Johnson. But that is actually not true at all. Demetrius Johnson outstruck Cruz almost the entire fight. As long as it stayed on the feet, Johnson was winning. Even though he's smaller than Cejudo by a large margin. One is shorter, but like 15 pounds, 20 pounds lighter, right? It was the speed factor and just the... Uh, rapid combinations that Cruz had a problem with. Cruz actually abandoned the striking when it came time to do that because he saw his wrestling was working so much, he allowed Demetrius Johnson to fight in, blitz him down, and then fall into the wrestling, fall into the takedowns, get a sense of security, and then Cruz just implements that double leg takedown as he dives under the punches as Demetrius Johnson has to punch up at the head, right? When you throw punches at a taller guy, you're lifting your arms up really high to punch him, which exposes the body and the legs greatly. And when you're moving into that forward trajectory, Cruz can intercept him with that takedown right when he bounces off the cage or right when he gets close to the cage and redirects. Nobody's better redirecting than Dominic Cruz. So he could do that better than almost everybody. And the reason why that's such a big factor in the Cejudo fight is, again, can Cruz wrestle? Can he do that? If Sudo walks him down, can Cruz go for those takedowns? Or does he have to stay on the feet with a smaller and faster man, right, who has one-shot knockout power? All that put together, it just makes it such a hard fight for Cruz. And the fact that he's coming a four-year layoff, he has a short training camp. I understand he's been training with Jeremy Stevens, he said. But training specifically for Henry Cejudo, it's a short training camp, right? Because Sudo has a very unique style. It's not something you can just generally train and you're ready for it. That's just not true. You're finding the absolute highest caliber wrestler to ever compete in the UFC. This is nothing like Uriah Faber. This is nothing compared to any wrestler Cruz has ever fought against before. And also, he's a smaller man. He's very small. Or should I say he's very short. But he's stocky and powerful and fast. This is unlike anybody Cruz has ever fought up against before. In that karate stance. He's never fought a guy with even that stance before. So just generally training with Jeremy Stevens and some younger and smaller guys is just not going to work that well, specifically preparing for this guy. 
right? If he's fighting Uriah Faber again, or if he's fighting Marlon Marais, or if he's fighting some other guy who has a very generic style, or something that's more generally seen in the training room, then yes, Kuz training with other guys, not targeting a fight is going to help him. But such a different fighter in Henry Cejudo, and he's been training cardio and everything for Jose Aldo, right? It's a different style than Dominic Cruz as well. But because Henry Cejudo has been so active, and he's been fighting high-level competition, the highest level of competition, back-to-back-to-back-to-back, in such a short amount of time, and he's so young, he's getting the experience in, he's only going to put him in a more advantageous position. You know what I'm saying? So, it's such a great fight, man. And then that main event, of course, Tony Ferguson and Justin Gaethje. Did you guys see their interview or their, I don't know what they call it, conference call? It was a very, it's a very weird setup they have. They've been having that thing for like the past 10 years and they never updated it. Let's do Skype or something. Why do we have to do this landline phone call, get this group call in here, and it's just the worst quality of all time? I mean, it sounds like they're talking to through toasters, you know? <laughs> but the way that they're laughing with each other, Tony and Justin Gaethje just laughing joyously with each other about wanting to kill each other as well. It just felt a, a bit uncomfortable. You know, you don't hear people talk like this. Like they're high-fiving virtually at each other, you know. They're probably going to get a drink after. They might even hang out beforehand and then get into the fight. They're going to be smiling and laughing as they punch and elbow each other in the face. And one of them, you know, gets knocked out eventually. Justin Gaethje is saying, I hope Tony breaks my nose. And like, I understand he's saying because he needs to get it fixed and UFC will pay for it. But just someone to say that, you know, I hope he beats me up, man. Like, I'm going to beat him up too. Yeah, yeah, you could beat me. I could beat you up. Like, it's such a weird exchange. And we knew that these two are not normal. But this is another level of abnormal human beings that I've ever seen before. These two guys would be the gladiators back thousands of years ago in the Colosseum. When it came to a line of battle in actual medieval warfare, these two guys would be on the front line charging at the enemy before they even got the command to do it. Like, <laughs> it's crazy. It's crazy. And with all that involved, we can all just say that this fight might even be more entertaining than the Habib fight. The Habib-Tony fight is prestigious. It's legendary. It's iconic because they are the two best. At the end of the day... The most prestigious, the best fighters in the world competing, generally draws more interest than just a great, exciting fight. And that is why a lot of people want to see the Tony and Habib fight. If Tony or Habib loses, that kind of goes away until they can win again or prove themselves again. This Tony-Justin Gaethje fight is all about, it's high level, don't get me wrong, it's extremely high level. Obviously, these two guys are some of the best fighters in this division, and they've been on a tear. But it's just not at the same level as Habib and Tony. That's the thing. It's just not at that level. That level is at a level that almost nobody can compete with. You have to draw in Stephen Miocic versus like John Jones to draw in that kind of high level fight. That's why it's so special. That's why so many people get mad when it just doesn't happen for the fifth time. Any other time, if Tony and Habib already happened or even if they weren't discussed, Tony versus Justin Gaethje would get everybody excited and nobody would even feel bad about it. When it comes to fight night, even the feeling I'm going to get like, man, this could have been Habib and Tony. I'm still going to try to enjoy it as much as possible. But I do know if Justin Gaethje goes out there and just knocks Tony Ferguson out in the first round off the leg kick, or any kick to be honest from Tony Ferguson, because that seems to be a weakness that people are starting to pick out now. When Tony throws kicks, he does leave his hands down and he doesn't really set them up. He comes in really far to throw it, which makes it very obvious, right? He kind of like steps in so far, almost like a soccer player to kick. It leaves his head exposed. People catch him. He's been dropped like four times because of that. So that's one of the biggest weaknesses of Tony Ferguson. If that happens, just in case you just catches him off the kick, Trevor Whitman might be onto that. You know, he's a great coach. But let's say that happens. Tony Ferguson goes in, steps in for the kick. Just in case you with this insane amount of power in his hands, catches Tony right on the chin and puts him unconscious. People are going to be so sad for Tony Ferguson. And the fact that Tony and Habib probably will not happen at that point. It just takes one big right hand from Justin Gaethje to end all of that. On the bright side, Gaethje and Habib get set up then. Most likely. With this stuff coming up, I'll get into this a little bit more after. Man, they're they're trying to trick my boy Habib, man. Everybody. I'll get right into that. But another fight, you know, Francis Gallo versus Rosenstrike. From my prediction, it seems like a lot of people are not giving Rosenstrike as much of a chance. People actually think... I've heard a couple of people at least say that Nganu's faster. How could you say Rosenstrike's faster? Rosenstrike is faster with his hands. I don't think that can be argued, to be honest. I mean, just look at them fight. Look at the counter punches. It might be because Nganu cocks back all of his punches, and that might be the reason why Rosenstrike seems like he punches faster, because he just 
throws it from the hip or throws it from a stance. Regardless, that's just how they throw punches. You know, if Rosenstrike's throwing it like that, where he's in a stance and he just pops in that left hook without winding it, and Nganu's dragging his knuckles across the floor to lift up for that left uppercut, that's just what it is, man. Or just swings his arm back for the left hook. That's just what it is. Rosenstrike punches faster, maybe because their form is different. And that's generally a big thing. Very similar with Henry Swift versus Dominic Cruz. So who was going to punch faster, even if they have the same amount of speed, same size, all that, Cejudo's still going to punch faster than Dominic Cruz because of the way they punch, right? Cejudo just throws it off on the hip. No telegraph at all on his punches. While Cruz leans and winds his punches back before he throws it. So it's the same kind of thing here. And people just cannot underestimate Rosenstrike. I understand he didn't look too hot against Overeem, but a lot of people seem to think that Overeem is just not as good of a heavyweight. Overeem is a world-class heavyweight, even to this day, right? He's just fighting the absolute best of the best, and he just does it at a consistent basis. And I do see some MMA math. Let me just, let me say this again. MMA math does not really exist. It looks good on paper, but it just doesn't come into reality. You know, I've said this a bunch of times. I see on other YouTube videos, I see on other YouTube comments. Thankfully, I don't see it as much that watch my content or even like Luke Thomas or other analysts like uh, Jack Slack or BJJ Scout or whatever. A lot of the comments there, they don't bring this up. They don't bring, this guy didn't look against one fighter. His opponent beat that guy, so therefore he should be able to beat him. That makes no sense because styles make fights. That's where styles make the difference. Again, let me bring up Ronda Rousey, Holly Holm, Misha Tate, who's the best out of the Misha Tate beat Holly Holm. Holly Holm beat Ronda Rousey. Ronda Rousey beat Misha Tate, so... Who's actually the best? Quentin Jackson, Leota Machida, Rashad Evans. Who's the best out of the three? Rashad beat Quentin. Quentin beat Leoto. Leoto beat Rashad. It doesn't make sense. It's never a good point to go to. I just see it all over the place. Even still. Even still. It's been argued against so long. Even from some of the most famous figures of the sport. Like Joe Rogan or something. Even though Joe Rogan recently, with the Conor McGregor greatest featherweight of all time thing... He kind of, you know, went back to MMA math, but even someone like Joe Rogan understands it and he tells the fans, right? He's one of the biggest voices in the sport, but still, man, they're still going to MMA math. This guy beat him, he beat him, so therefore, you know, like, it can seem like an easy thing to go to. It can seem like it's easy to make MMA math points and then get an equalization that this guy should win at the end, but it just never goes that way. It's much more complex than that. It's much more complicated. That's why you got to know the techniques and skills and styles involved because that's what's actually going to make or break the fight. The mental aspect of it is ultimately the most important, but that's just the part that we don't know. That's only for the fighter and people involved in the training camp. They are the ones that know that. Fans don't know that. So we just go off skills, styles, techniques, and matchups. That's it. MMA math, records, all that stuff does not matter. The only thing that can possibly matter with the record is if they're on some great momentum. Like Henry Cejudo, right? Henry Cejudo is on a greater momentum than Dominic Cruz. That has to mean his mental state is probably at all-time high right now, while Cruz has some doubts probably lingering in there. That's a thing that we can draw out from the whole record and resume thing. Everything else about who he's beating and all that stuff, without looking at the styles and what they use in the fight, just looking at he beat him and that's all you see, that tells you nothing. That really tells you nothing because they're not fighting that guy. They're fighting a completely different style, completely different opponent, different mindset, different way they go about life. It's not great that some people still bring up that Rosenstrike had a tough time with Alistair Overeem and Ngannou knocked out Overeem in one round easily. That doesn't tell you anything. That just tells you how they compete against Overeem. That's all they tell you. Ngannou knows how to fight Overeem. He's a better style to fight Overeem than Rosenstrike. Rosenstrike had a hard time with Overeem. That just tells you that he had a harder time against Overeem's style. There's no crossover between that and Nganu. We don't know how Rosenstrike's going to fight Nganu. We don't know how Nganu's going to fight Rosenstrike. They're going to fight differently. I guarantee, guarantee, Nganu's not going to fight Rosenstrike the way he fought Overeem. I guarantee that. And if that's a fact, that alone tells you that MMA math does not work. It makes no sense. And it should not be equated in anything, you know? But ultimately... I can't wait for that fight. It's going to be bombs away, World War III in the arena in Jacksonville, Florida. People are going to ask, when did World War III happen? Jacksonville, Florida on May 9th, 2020. Just a lot of people missed it. And it was hilarious. If you look at the weigh-ins and them staring down with each other, Dana White did this thing where he gets in between them when they get a little bit close and he can feel the tension. Obviously, Rosenstrike and Ngannou have a very competitive edge against each other, right? They're very focused and very serious about it because... Who calls off Francis Ngannou? Rosenstrike is the only guy that did it. And that probably brings something out of Ngannou a little bit differently, you know? Nobody calls him out. Someone to finally call him out and say that he's overhyped, 
We're going to get a fight in our hands, ladies and gentlemen. But the funny thing was when they're staring down with each other, it was very tense. Dana White does that thing where he brings his hand in between them to kind of separate. And then he kind of just slowly lowers it and looks at both of them. And you can tell he knew, man, if this popped off, I can't do a thing. I'd probably just run for it, man. No collateral damage here. Think about it. What, what would stop Ngannou and Rosenstrike from fighting in that room? They have to bring in like 20 security guards to hold one of them back. There will be a couple knockouts involved. There will be a couple guys that would have to take a couple for the team. But man, that would be terrifying. That's probably the worst job in the world. Have to separate the fighters if anything popped off. But then again, Ngannou, Rosenstrike, they're very professional. So they're not going to obviously do something like that. But what if? Makes you think. But there's a lot of good fights, man. I went over the prediction video. So if you guys haven't checked that out, I recommend you guys checking that out to see what I think about every single fight and... For the first time, I did every single fight on a fight card like I said I was going to because it was a long layoff and I was actually excited to do it. And now here's the other things that came in the news. Conor McGregor, Jorge Masvidal, and they're trying to trick Habib, man. They're trying to play this voodoo spell on him and get him to fight Conor McGregor. So first, let's talk about the Dana White thing because it's a little bit quicker. Dana White said that it would be interesting for Jorge Masvidal to fight in July against Conor McGregor. It'll be an interesting fight. It's a fight that a lot of people want, but he said he doesn't see why it should happen. It doesn't make sense to him. Potentially, we can get it because Connor's manager just said that Connor wants to come back in July. And that was a targeted month that Usman was going to fight Jorge Masvidal. And it still is a targeted month that they want for Masvidal. Dana just said recently they have other plans for Masvidal. Usman is the fight to happen. But for some reason, he's not telling us why, but he's saying that there's other plans for Masvidal. So everybody instantly thought Conor McGregor. Like, that has to be it, right? If it's not Usman, if they're playing with this thing, it has to be Conor. Conor versus Hori. But here come the, the conspiracy theories more, and this is that Dana White is trying to negotiate a bit or push Usman or Jorge to fight each other. It seems like with what he's saying, he's trying to push Usman to take the fight, right? Because if he's drawing Jorge into a fight with Connor or alluding that something interesting, quote-unquote interesting, happened with Jorge that doesn't include Usman, that must mean Usman's excluded. And that must mean if this is a whole negotiation tactic, he's trying to get Usman to sign the dotted line because Jorge is Usman's big fight. And another interesting thing is Dana White had just said that they might even do the rematch with Colby Covington versus Kamar Usman if this Jorge thing doesn't happen with Usman or if they have him fight someone else. Now, Connor took some shots at Dustin Poirier, or should I say he took shots at the rankings, but had a backhand to Dustin Poirier at the same time. So he pretty much said, how could they have Dustin Poirier ahead of him in the rankings when he knocked him out? And he called him a P. He didn't even call him P-head, he just called him P. And he was kind of upset at that, which makes you think that they might have that as a fight. Dustin Poirier hasn't fought in a pretty long time. He has been open. He wants to fight, I think, Dan Hooker. I think that was the fight they were looking at. But ultimately, Connor wants to fight. He wants to fight in July. And if Connor wants to fight, he's going to fight. He just has that kind of power. If he wants to go out there, they have nothing to do to hold him back. Big money fight, and it'll do very well for pay-per-view, even though there's no gate. And Dana White even said Connor knows that he hates that part of it, that there is not going to be an audience. He still wants to go out there and compete. And people were saying about Connor, you know, Connor's going to stick to his word and stay in Ireland, all that stuff. I never bought that. I never buy that, man, because. First of all, again, a lot of people are starting to see that the virus is slowing down, or at least it's not as bad as people thought it was going to be. And Connor probably sees the same thing. And July is far enough inside the summer that it probably would be a lot safer to go out there and fight. If Connor wants to fight in July, he's going to fight in July. That's just what it's going to come down to. He's going to have an opponent. It's going to be either Hori Mazdal. It might be Dustin Poirier. I don't know who it's going to be. And let's be honest, the rankings have been way more favorable to Conor McGregor than anybody else. He's still like in the top five right? Yes, he was a champion before, but he got destroyed by Habib, and he really fought in the lightweight division, right? He instantly got into, like, the top five once he got into the lightweight division. Before he even fought Andy Alvarez, I believe they ranked him, or something like that. They've been way too lenient and beneficial to Conor McGregor, right? I don't think Conor just wants to bash the rankings. He's, like, the last guy that should be doing that. And I guess the argument that Conor McGregor was the champion, and how could a former champion not be in the top five. Well, here's the thing. Why is Jose Aldo outside the top 10 in the featherweight division? He's number 11 in the featherweight division. He actually has more wins in the featherweight division after he lost his belt than Connor has wins in the lightweight division entirely, right? They both lost their belt. Yes, Jose Aldo lost three times, but he also won in the meantime. He's not even in the top 10, let alone the top five. 
Or how about this? Dominic Cruz is not even ranked. He's not even in the top 15 at the bantamweight division. And people will say, yeah, but he's been inactive. Well, hold on. Here's the thing. When were their last victories in either the lightweight division or bantamweight division, respectively? Both their last wins for their targeted title shot weight class were both in 2016. In the same year, yet one is not even ranked and the other is in the top five. How does that make sense? Yeah, but you're going to count Connor has fought in 2018 against Khabib. Yeah, but he lost. If anything, that hurts his ranking status. And I believe before Dominic Cruz was left off the rankings because of his inactivity, he was number eight. How does that make sense? There can be an argument that the bantamweight division has been more active at the top of the rankings in the lightweight division, but that's actually not even true as well. Before Henry Cejudo was a champion, who was the champion? TJ Dillashaw. When did TJ Dillashaw last defend his belt? That was against Cody Garbrandt in 2018, the same time Habib fought Conor McGregor, right? TJ Dillashaw fought Cody Garbrandt in 2017, the first time when Cody was a champion. And before that, Cody Garbrandt fought Dominic Cruz a year before. So in the last four years, there was only one championship fight for every single year ever since Dominic Cruz lost his belt. That is not active. And you look at the lightweight division, right? Habib at least fought twice for the belt in 2018. He fought Dustin Poirier last year in 2019. Already, that's more active for the champion, right? And before he won his battle against Eli Quinta, which was early 2018, the champion was Tony Ferguson when he defeated Kevin Lee. And that happened late 2017, about a half a year earlier. The lightweight division has been rolling quicker than the bantamweight division, which would mean if someone's not active, they should be shunned out of the top five and even the top 10 faster than Dominic Cruz was. It's 100%. They left him in there, right? It's 100% it was on purpose. The lightweight division was more active, especially the championship and the top five. Yet Dominic Cruz was moved out because of the activity from the bantamweight division. Yet Connor stayed top five the entire time and didn't fight. His only fight he lost pretty badly too. So it should hurt his ranking, not keep him in place, you know? And I believe if I'm not wrong, they put him up a ranking, I think above Tony Ferguson when he fought Habib. Like, come on, tell me that's not crazy. And now regarding the link between Conor McGregor and Habib and everything going on, the thing is, Habib has said recently that he will fight in July or he'll be ready for July. And man, that's not good news with everything else coming involved. So here's the other thing. Javier Mendez, who is Habib's coach, has come out and said that Conor is Habib's most dangerous fight. He says Tony's a good fighter, Justin Gaethje's a good fighter, but he feels like Connor is more dangerous and he fears Connor more than them. What we know about Javier Mendez is he has said before that he wants Khabib to take the fight with the most money. He has said that before. And this could be his way of playing up the Connor fight more. And another thing is Ali Abdelaziz has been more lenient or more softened to the Connor fight than the Tony and Justin Gaethje fight, right? He said things against Tony and Justin Gaethje recently to fight Khabib and he has been bringing up Connor more. So there's that. And Dana White has said recently that the Habib and Connor fight is the fight that he wants to see the most. And now Habib says that he's open for July all of a sudden. No, don't fall into it. They're they're tricking my boy, man. Take the Tony Ferguson fire Justin Gaethje. Whoever wins this one, this is who should be fighting Habib. If they look over whoever wins tonight and they go to Conor McGregor, I'm going to be pretty upset for a couple months before it happens. And then fight night comes, I'm going to be in love with the fight for some reason because I'm a fight fan. But why? Why are we such fight fans that at the end of the day, even if they go and do Habib and Connor, even how mad we're going to be about the whole Tony situation, we're still going to be excited for that fight. It's a curse, man. It's a curse and it's 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 a gift. It's just not right. It's so scummy. It's so like sleazy how they do Tony Ferguson like that. He's probably the most mistreated fighter and he's going to go and win a second interim belt. He's going to be the only person ever to hold two interim championships. He's going to go and defeat Justin Gaethje too to do it? Man, that's so bad. That's why, at the end of the day, if they skip over Tony Ferguson, that is the reason champion belts mean nothing besides just making more money because the casual fans buy into it, right? They don't understand what's going on here. They don't understand that Tony's been so mistreated and he's been looked over so many times. I understand he's done his part too. He hurt himself. He shot himself in the foot a couple times. But more so than ever, he has deservedly gotten that title shot or he was the number one contender or even got the interim belt or whatever he was the guy that was supposed to fight the big fight and they just go over him look over him casual fans don't even know that and that's a sad part of the game because they're gonna go and fuel up by every fight especially if conor mcgregor is involved so yeah that's troubling that's that's uh 
It's a bit sad, to be honest. But now let's get right to the questions here. So we're going to go to the most liked comment. And that is going to come to who? Question mark. Can Wonder Boy have a resurgence towards title shot in current scenario of welterweight division? Yes, with the right matchups. He's a bit older though, so it's unlikely to be honest. He's going to stay like top five. And then I see him losing a bit and going down in the rankings until he finds a way out. And at that point, actually, before he retires, he's going to have some fun fights. And then he exits the sport, most likely. So he can, yes, but I just don't see it happening. There's too many good wrestlers. There's too many guys at the top there that just compete against him too strongly. If he can fight Hori Mazdal or get a title shot against Hori Mazdal and Mazdal is a champion or something like that, yes, because I believe he can beat Jorge. But there's too many guys up there that give him a hard time. Like Colby Covington, Kamaru Usman, Tyron Woodley does again. Leon Edwards will be an interesting fight. That's another fight he can get that would be competitive for him. And then we go to Kelly 46 or Kel 46. Worst game plan in a fight ever and the best. Worst game plan or I don't know if it was a game plan because I don't know anybody who will make this game plan. That was when Andre Sukumtat decided to take down Sean O'Malley who injured his leg. So he's losing the fight. He lost the first two rounds. He got dropped in the first round. He's getting absolutely shut out. He finds his window of opportunity where Sean O'Malley head kicks Andre, but Andre blocks it. And it kind of, I don't know what it did to the leg, but it injured Sean O'Malley to the point where he couldn't even stand on it. So one legged fighter that you're losing to is the last round. What are you going to do? Oh, I'm going to go and take him down. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get him on his back where his legs don't matter as much to hold balance. He can actually still use that leg now. On the ground, on his back, Sean O'Malley can still use that leg to get rubber guard, omoplatas. He can grab that with his hand and use it to however way he wants. On the feet, where he has to balance on his legs, balance on his feet, he cannot do that. All you gotta do is kick his other leg. All you gotta do is throw kicks at him because he can't reach you. Sean O'Malley can't kick anymore. He's on one leg. He needs to use that to balance on, to stand on. So if you're kicking from the outside, and Andre Sukumtao is also a Muay Thai fighter, coincidentally, if you start kicking at the guy, he can't do a thing about it. Because even if he blocks it, because he does have his hands and arms, he doesn't have the balance to take it and absorb it. If he blocks a powerful body kick, round kick to the head, whatever, Sean O'Malley is either going to fall on his back, or he's going to get off balance trying to bounce in place, and he makes himself wide open for a follow-up shot. Striking at a distance is the way to go. Man, that was terrible. Wow. I remember watching that with my cousin. We were both like, what is this guy doing? I don't want to, I'm not rooting for a fighter, but there's such a big opportunity this guy's missing. It's crazy, man. Another bad one was uh, Clay Guida versus Gray Maynard back in the day. Clay Guida was known as this super active, energetic guy who just comes forward and throws his hands, a lot of takedowns, a lot of activity. He fought Gray Maynard in a very weird game plan where he just circled around and tried to play the cat and mouse game, where he had a cardio advantage. His wrestling was good enough to compete with Gray Maynard, especially MMA wrestling. His activity can potentially get Maynard to get frustrated, yet he moved away, circled around the cage, and did almost nothing the entire fight and lost. Like, it was a terrible game plan. Best game plans, there's a lot of good game plans. So, uh, obviously, John Jones versus DC the second time, conditioning him into the head kick. There is Stipe's adjustment to DC in the, in the second fight as well. Going to the body shot. Josie Aldo versus Frankie Edgar too. Just stayed away. Used his speed in his right hand. Speed in his jab. And just stopped takedowns. That's all he did. It was so easy for him to do it. Rather than before where he kind of waited on him. Stuck in place and tried to counter him. Intercept him and throw a lot of leg kicks. He kind of abandoned all that. And played a very elusive style. Oh Rory McDonald versus Tyron Woodley. How can I forget that? That was a complete shutout. From every part of the fight. Stuck on the outside of the jab, just kept peppering, pestering Tyron Woodley with every sharp punch, front kicks, and all that stuff. The guy just did not let Tyron Woodley do anything. Tyron Woodley would try something, he would get answered and countered for it. Every step he took, got countered. It was all because Tyron Woodley stuck his back to the cage, and he's just too short and at too far of a reach to get anything off and be affected with anything without getting paid for it. And he doesn't have the striking prowess of Roy McDonald or the timing of Roy McDonald, so it made a very hard fight for him. There's so much more. Cody Garbrandt versus Dominic Cruz was a masterful game plan. Waited on Cruz, and instead of chasing the guy down and falling for the illusions, he just made Cruz come at him and fall into his punches and takedowns. And then with the Jordan Presnell. Tony's boxing coach said no one could become a champion in boxing starting at around 18 to 20 years old. Unlike the UFC where champions can start as late as their 20s. 
Do you believe this is true? What are your thoughts about this? It's a little bit different. Well, first of all, we got to point out that boxers can compete as kids. In MMA, you can't do that. So automatically, MMA fighters, UFC fighters, they can only start competing once they're hitting that adult age. You know, So in Canada, I think it's 16. Here, it's 18 in America, etc., etc. So it automatically pushes the age of the fighters later. Right? They can train up until that. But the competition is what actually matters, what actually gets you the feeling of a fight. And that happens when they're an adult. They can't do it beforehand. But that ultimately also shows fighters aren't taking the same kind of damage. Not just because the sport of boxing focuses on headshots a lot more. But the damage sustained through fights is nowhere comparable, you know. So it also allows fighters to compete later in their careers. You don't see a lot of 40-year-olds fighting in boxing. You see a lot of them in MMA. And also it's not actually completely true because there are some boxers, boxing champions such as Deontay Wilder. Who boxes very late. He didn't even start as a teenager. He started as an adult. Pretty much had his whole career in his 20s and 30s. So there are a couple outliers. But the usual is boxers. They start very young. And that is why they also end very young. You know what I'm saying? And the other thing is when a boxer gets found out in boxing. There's very little they can do to adjust to it. Because it's such a simple game. There's like simple mechanics that people try to perfect constantly, right? There's a lot of perfection of these simple movements and simple attacks and simple techniques and defenses. In MMA, there's entirely different styles, like completely different and it leaves holes in everybody. So it allows everybody to have a chance, everybody to have an advantage. And that allows also older fighters to eventually with the right style, they can go and beat them because they have the correct techniques to exploit the weaknesses naturally. In boxing... It's very different. Everybody's boxing. Yes, there's different styles, but the changes between every fighter is a lot more minor than an MMA, where it doesn't give a lot of boxers. If you're found out, you don't have as much of a chance, and that happens a lot with older boxers as well. Tony's coach is not entirely accurate or correct on this, but he is mostly accurate, generally, yeah. Especially in the lighter weight classes, right? In both sports, lighter weight classes, they peak at a younger age, or they become less effective as they get old. Because the skills and technique is a lot more focused on, rather than power where anybody can one-shot each other in the heavyweight division. So there's that as well. But Tony Ferguson, you know, Tony's 155 or 36 years old now, I think. Still doing the thing in his prime. So the cap just gets pushed higher and higher, older and older in MMA. It's crazy. And then we go to GT. Are body shots underutilized in MMA? And how effective can they be when used properly? And who uses them the best? Paulo Costa, Nick Diaz, Eddie Alvarez, and Alvarez vs. Gaethje all come to mind. Yeah, okay, body punches are underutilized. Body kicks are still utilized all the time, you know? Body punches, it can seem like like a no-purpose thing to go for punches to the body when you can kick to the body. You know what I'm saying? It's like, why would I dip my head so low just to come for a body shot when I can just stay far away and kick at them or get in close and just lift my knee into their body. You know, why would I have to go through such lengths to do it? Now, of course, it's not that simple, right? Body punches, body hooks and stuff in MMA generally are a lot more useful as counter punches. Generally, because getting your head off the center line and dipping so far, either low or to your side, it does open you up to get kicked or kneed or punched in the head, intercepted, right? It's a lot easier to get intercepted or even get taken to the ground with a takedown, right? Because you don't have the same kind of balance when you're leaning and stuff. So it's not as easy to just go for it, you know? A couple times you'll see it, of course, of course, right? Steepy versus DC, he went to that a lot. Even though he countered him with a lot, he went to the, just that dipping left uppercut to the body. Although you have to note, DC isn't a kicker or a guy with those knees a lot, so it was a lot safer for him to do it. If you do it against John Jones, you're going to get head kicked easily, right? If you do it against Barboza, you might die, you know? So it's different in MMA. The component of doing it is different. The reason is a little bit different. When you go for that left hook to the body, as you dip to your left, let's say if you're an orthodox fighter, you're going to have off the center line and slipping a punch and then go to the body. That is when it's mostly utilized. And also in combination, right? Because the punches get thrown into the opponent's face and that's what they see. They get focused on the punches at the head and then you just go to the body, right? Just going for a naked punch to the body it's going to be very dangerous to do that in MMA. So I can see why they're underutilized. It just takes more time for fighters to perfect it and get more comfortable going for it and knowing when to use it. I just think we're at a time right now where MMA is not evolved enough or advanced enough to go and use that under the MMA context, right? With everything involved in MMA, it's still very dangerous. And people are just thinking, I'm just going to go to the body with a kick, man. I'm just going to go with the knee. I'm not going to dip so low and get myself knocked out. So I think that's what's going on here.
Because even in the gym, you don't see a lot of it in the gym. You actually see it more in the gym than you do in fights, but you still don't see it as much use in boxing, for an example. But who uses them the best? Paulo Costa, of course, uses it amazingly. Nick Diaz, of course, uses it very well. Alvarez had a good performance with it against Gaethje, but historically, I'll have to say Nick Diaz because he uses it very technically and he uses it to expend the gas tank of the opponent. Right, he kind of pushes him up against the cage, and that's when he goes to the body over and over again. But that style, to be honest, putting your head into the guy's chest and just throwing body punches without cutting them off if they exit, that's just not going to work anymore. So for Nick Diaz's day, it worked. It was great. For his day, if you count different eras, Nick Diaz might have the best body shots. But if you look at just technique, who does it the best? I got to say Paul Coles is better because he cuts off the opponent at least when he does it, and they're more powerful. Way more powerful the way he throws it. Pound for pound, way more leverage in his punches when he throws them. And also, he mixes them with headshots, too, just like Nick Diaz. And they're very similar in form, too, right? They swing back their arms and wind them up before they go to the body. So they're very, very similar. It just comes a different era, though. That's that's the main factor in that. If Paulo Costa fought back in, like, 2002 and started then and, you know, went on from there, I would have to say that Nick Diaz, if he starts when Paulo Costa did, Diaz will, of course, be more advanced at it. So... Technique only gets better as time goes on. You know, you're not going to go and say Matt Hughes had the best takedown. Maybe for his day, but compare him now to fighters, it just doesn't come close. He's not even one of the best with takedowns. So that's just what it comes down to. And then we go to official John Jones mugshot. People say that Stipe's adjustment against DC was a masterclass adjustment, but to me, it's something he should have been doing in the first place. But Henry Cejudo against Malamorais was truly spectacular. In your opinion, what was the smartest fight adjustment you've ever witnessed in MMA? Those are two good ones, man. I won't completely agree with you when you say that Stipe's was not... Well, I don't know if you're saying it if it wasn't a masterclass. Yes, it's common sense because John Jones did the same thing. John Jones showed everybody you gotta go to the body because it opens up DC more. And he just doesn't defend the body shots. But the way he was going with it, it was kind of like spamming it. Like it was the UFC 3 video game and DC couldn't do a thing about it. Yes, it was a masterclass adjustment, especially because of the damage he was taking in the fight. And also, he mixed it up with that pivoting straight right hand at the end there. So, yes, it was a masterclass adjustment. I do agree with you as well that he should have been doing it in the first place. I do agree with that. So, Hudos was also truly spectacular because nobody was able to do it against Marlon Morris. Right? So, I can say that Sohudos is more impressive, but it wasn't as, how should you say, obvious. It wasn't so open opaque to the eye you know what i'm saying it wasn't like something you can easily see oh steepy's throwing left hook to the body left hook to the body and that's all he's doing it wasn't that easy and simple so hudo put on pressure changed up his boxing game and mixed up with wrestling as a counter a lot better a lot of different things involved that made it harder to see what he was doing but i would say that yes so Hudo's adjustment was probably more spectacular because it was a lot more technical and it was something we didn't really see from all to that extent at least you know, those are two of the smartest. Those are really good ones. Another great one was TJ Dillashaw going to the leg kicks against Dominic Cruz, even though he lost the fight. That is what made the fight so close. He went to those leg kicks as Dominic Cruz is starting to get in a little bit more. He found his timing a little bit better, found his range a little bit better as the fight was playing out because he had a hard time with the, the footwork initially. He was actually going to the leg kicks early in the fight, but he kept missing because he didn't figure out the footwork first. You got to figure out the movement before you can kick him in the legs. It's very easy to think that how you stop a guy from moving is just kick his legs. But when a guy has such a weird, funky, awkward movement style like Dominic Cruz, it's a lot easier said than done. But eventually he was able to find out some of the patterns and some of the ways he was moving and then start kicking out the legs. And it made Cruz seem like he was being more flat-footed. And then we go to Anthony Harwood. If you could pick five fights on the main card of Fight Island with only two title fights max, which fights are you picking? We'll say Tony Ferguson wins tomorrow night. Habib vs. Tony. That's that's the one that happens in July. Jorge versus Conor McGregor is a co-main event. But does that count as a title fight? I don't know. If it's not, we'll also have Adesanya versus Paulo Costa. Why not, you know, for the mid-holy belt. And then um, let's get Korean Zombie versus Brian Ortega. And then I really want to see Santiago Ponzinibbio versus Jeff Neal. That would be a good one. And then we go to Joe Allen's beard. Is the reach advantage that the UFC shows on the tail of the tape really half as long as it actually says? For example, John Jones has an 84-inch reach. And normally has around an 8-inch reach advantage over his opponent. But that number is Jones' wingspan. So wouldn't the difference actually be halved when going jab for jab with his opponent since the jab utilized only his arm and not his entire wingspan? A bit of a weird question, but one I've wondered for a while now. Keep up the great content and be safe. So 
Yeah, I see what you're saying. And it is a bit weird at the end of the day because nobody's fighting with arms fully extended out. Nobody's doing anything with that. So I can see why like taking half of that to use is more logical, right? It makes sense because when you're throwing a jab, for an example, you're generally just using half of your body. You're using half of that reach because when you're throwing a jab, you're using all of that arm and like half of your chest. So yeah, it is a bit weird that they use the whole wingspan for their measurement. And that is only using like the jab, for an example. If you're going with the ground game or if you're going with clinching up or whatever, you're not even using your whole chest to reach in for stuff. You're just using your arms. So the reach is even much less than they're saying. And the differences get skewered a bit because some people have longer arms and some people have wide shoulders that make up for their reach, you know? So there's different, different stuff going on here. If you look at like Tony Ferguson, Tony Ferguson has not the widest shoulders or anything like that. It all comes from his arm length. But then you have guys like Conor McGregor who has very wide shoulders and moderately long arms. So it's very different. It's, it's a lot more complex than they're actually measuring. And then we go to El Kukui. Will Dan Hardy make it inside the octagon on his fight if he comes back? Probably not. He does want to give out his secrets, right? They would have to replace him, though. I wonder who. And then we go to ZXC. Who wins? Number one, Song Yudong versus Malin Vera. Song Yudong, I would say. Number two, Drew Dober versus Alex Hernandez. I'll say Drew Dober. I think his experience is going to make the difference. Prime Josh Koscheck versus Colby Covington. Covington absolutely mops the floor with Koscheck. No difficult. Number four, motivated Gegar Musasi versus Israel Adesanya. I'll say Adesanya. I think he's a little bit better of a striker. And number five, Korean Zombie versus Alexander Volkanovsky. That is a tough fight for both of them. That's a really good fight. I'll go with Volkanovski, but very slightly, man. I can see Korean Zombie absolutely winning that fight. And then we go to another El Kukui. Why is it so easy to stay undefeated for a long time in boxing, but it's very hard to stay undefeated in MMA? And also, who do you think will win? Alright, so fantasy matchups, love your content, man. Hope your mom's doing well. Thank you so much, man. So, well, here's the thing. In MMA, UFC will say, it's hard to stay undefeated because the competition is harder at the end of the day because you're constantly fighting the best fighters. And boxing, there's a lot of times, even if they're established champions, greats of the sport, they still get those fights where it's like, why is this guy fighting him? Look how many times Tyson Fury fought some guy that we didn't even know. Or Anthony Joshua, even recently, didn't have a high-level fight. I mean, in MMA, the UFC, there's a lot more high-level opponents for them to compete against than in boxing. So that's number one, and that's actually a big part of it. And also, in MMA, again, there's different styles and bigger holes than there is in boxing. In boxing, there's a very tiny dense in every boxer because it's such a simple game, it's such a compact game, where a lot of times that's why you don't even see people knocking each other out. You see a lot of decision wins because they just can't find that hole specifically in the fight. In MMA, because there's so many different styles, so many ways of fighting, there's also so many holes and so many strengths. There's so many exaggerations in MMA than in boxing. And also in MMA, knockouts happen a lot quicker because it's also four-ounce gloves. And there's kicks involved, right? There's no padding on your legs and there's pretty much no padding on your hands creating more damage than in boxing. Boxers padded up gloves, that's why they can land 500 punches on each other. Yeah, it's going to create some brain damage, some micro-concussions, but you're not going to see a lot of knockouts because of that stuff. So that is why MMA is just a lot more risky, should I say, to lose than in boxing. And let's not lie, there's a lot of boxers who get protected, a lot more than MMA fighters. Look how many times you see boxers, their first like 30 fights are all cans or just taxi drivers and then they finally fight one good guy and then they fight three more that are like top 15 fighters even though they're the champion you know you see that a lot in boxing and it's just a repeat it's a cycle and now let's go to twitter so we're gonna start with at mike fifa hd do you think we could see naganu what am i brock lesnar do you think we could see nganu shoot on rosenstrike before the pandemic he was training at ranico tour's gym for a bit really and after the way Overeem had his way with him on the ground, I believe we could see Nganu shoot. I would love to see his ground and pound. That's a very interesting thing. It actually crossed my mind before I made the prediction. I didn't know he was training at Rana Couture's gym. I know he was training after the pandemic, or during the pandemic, should I say. He was training at uh, Couture's gym, and I thought it was just because he couldn't train at his gym. So I can absolutely see it, because if you're going to take the path of least resistance and actually show fight IQ, Nganu should try some wrestling out, because I believe... At this point, he should be a better wrestler than Rosenstrike. He's competed against better wrestlers, and he's been training in MMA at a higher level for a longer time. He also has submission wins under his belt, right? He submitted Anthony Hamilton with a Kimura. So it's not, not out of the realm of possibility, but 
How would he do it? I really wonder. That's something we will never predict. If a gun goes out there and he's double-legging fools like GSP in his prime, nobody's beating this guy. Nobody's beating him. I wonder. I really wonder. I can see his ground upon being filthy. Just nasty ground upon, man. And then we go to at UA Smatico. Curtis Blades just said that the girls in the UFC are treated better than the guys. Not releasing one on a losing streak. Example, Jessica I, Caitlin Curran. They fight worse and they use their body to stay relevant. Agree or disagree? I don't know if I agree necessarily with the fact that they're treated better than the guys. Because if you look at the pay, they're all paid according to how much they can sell and how big their name is. So there's a pretty much equal ground there when you talk about relevancy. But there have been plenty of guys who have been on losing streaks. Look at Donald Cerrone lately. Donald Cerrone's on a three-loss streak, all knockouts. And if he loses tomorrow night, we can guarantee he's not going to get cut. You know what I'm saying? That's four losses in a row. Look at Tito Ortiz back in the day. Tito Ortiz was on a terrible losing streak. Look at BJ Penn. I understand they want BJ Penn to retire, so it's a little bit different. But I'm pretty sure there's plenty of fighters. I guarantee... I could have sworn there was a fighter right now that's like on a five losing streak or something. Oh, Chris Wyman. Look at Chris Wyman's career. You know, he's doing pretty bad too. Now, what you'll say is all these guys are like championship level fighters or... They've been at the top of the rankings forever. But Jessica I just fought for a belt, right? And I think they were on the brink of cutting Jessica I when she was on a three-loss streak. Didn't they cut Caitlin Curran? And also, I believe they cut Angela Magana, right? So I don't, I don't necessarily agree too much when you look at it factually. But who knows what's going behind the scene? Who knows? And in terms of they use their body to stay relevant, <laughs> Paige Van Zandt, oh, um, I'm just kidding. Actually, I don't know if I am. Who knows, man? Who knows? Because that could be a way that they're selling fights more or they're making more of a name for themselves. Paige Van Zandt, I think, is pretty big on Instagram right now or she gets a lot of followers and views and likes, all that stuff. So potentially that's why she gets paid more, you know? I don't agree with what Curtis Blade said, but there's stuff we don't know about. Let's be honest here. And finally, we go to at Kchunk29. I've been taking martial arts since I was 16, 17. What is your favorite Taekwondo Tang Sudo technique? And MMA, who is your favorite karate fighter or karate style fighter? Thank you for all your hard work. I'll send you a video of me doing some of my favorite technique. Oh, can't wait to see it, man. My favorite are just the simple sidekick and turning sidekick. That's it. Hook kicks are nice. I can throw the hook kick pretty well. Any kind of wheel kick variation is nice. I love the tornado kick as well. The two touch as well. You know, there's a lot of techniques I like, but the simple sidekick... Now I use it more to the leg than to the body because the Taekwondo obviously attacking the body. I use it to the leg more and then there's the turning psychic which I go to the body with. The turning psychic may also be my most powerful technique. It's the technique I've pretty much drilled more than anything else. So that's the end of the podcast guys. I hope you guys enjoyed the episode. If you did make sure to like, make sure to subscribe to my YouTube channel if you're listening to the audio version of this. And I'll see you guys in the next video.